God, you don't know me. You don't know God. You don't know how merciful and gracious God is. And it ministers to God when you praise Him. And most of us don't think about that we have anything that we can minister to God about. And anyway, I'm not going to preach that, but that's a great message. You need to get that. If you haven't heard it, you need to get it. What I want to do this morning, and this morning and tonight, I've got more to say than what I can say uh, today. And so I'm wanting to go in and show you some differences between the way people prayed and interceded in the Old Testament and the way it's done in the New Testament. I think that this is one of the ways that our opinions of prayer have been skewed is because it was different under the Old Covenant. And most people honestly do not understand the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. They think it's just one blank page in their Bible and they think that that's it. But it is huge. It's huge the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. And many of us just read these Old Testament scriptures which are still tremendous benefit. I spent a lot of time studying the Old Testament But you have to interpret it in the light of the New Testament. And the way people prayed in the Old Testament and the relationship they had with God isn't even close to the way that New Testament Christians are supposed to relate to God. And so many of us go back and take Old Testament examples and that's who we model as our example of how to pray and do things. And it's wrong and it'll lead you into mistakes. It's totally different now under the New Covenant. Nearly every time you'll hear somebody talk about a prophet, they'll go back and take some example from the Old Testament about a prophet like Elijah calling fire down out of heaven, 2 Kings chapter 1. And this is the way that they want to be. And yet Jesus in the New Testament in Luke chapter 9 verse 52 rebuked his disciples for even thinking of calling fire down out of heaven as Elijah did. They said, should we call fire down out of heaven the way Elijah did? And he turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. If Jesus would have been on this earth in his physical ministry in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah would have been rebuked for calling down fire out of heaven and killing 102 men. Now, it wasn't wrong at the time because that was the way God was dealing with people. But under the new covenant, it is totally different. And it's amazing how people don't understand this. And so they go out and they want to call down fire from heaven and judgment on this person. And man, under the new covenant, you are never supposed to do that. It's a totally different day. And yet most people have no understanding of this. And so I'm going to focus on prayer and just show you some Old Testament prayers. I bet you every one of you have heard these examples used as how you're supposed to pray. And I'm going to show you that in light of the New Testament, that's wrong to pray that way. Let's start out in Genesis chapter 18 and look at an example about where Abraham interceded for his nephew Lot in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And anyway, this is quite a detailed account. I'm only going to break in to a portion of it. And um, this is Genesis chapter 18 and in verse 17. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him and they will keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. 
And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of which came, is come unto me. And if not, I will know. For those of you who aren't familiar with this, Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, was where uh, the cities were given over totally to homosexuality and bestiality. And two angels went down and the men of the city surrounded the house and wanted to have sexual relationships with these two angels. And the two angels rained fire and brimstone down and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, that's quite a testimony on what God thinks about homosexuality. Amen. Some people are debating this. There's even Christians that claim that they're homosexuals and that God approves of it. I don't believe God's going to rain fire down on you. You know, Jesus purchased a mercy and grace and we're living under a period of grace, but God hadn't changed his opinion about what sin is. He may not have been pouring his judgment out on people, but homosexuality is a sin. It's an abomination. And I don't know how anybody can claim to believe the Bible and still say that homosexuality is just a matter of choice or genetics. It's not. It's a sin. God would have been unjust to have brought judgment on people if it was something that they couldn't control. But you know, it's amazing. Most people just don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe very much. But if you believe the Bible, this, this is more than enough proof to me that you know what? Homosexuality is not something you want to mess with. And so in verse... Um, in verse 20, the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done according uh, to the cry of it which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence, talking about two angels, and went down towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty Righteous within the city, wilt thou also destroy? Excuse me, I turned two pages. And not spare the place for fifty righteous that are therein. That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now again, many people cite the way Abraham is praying right here and encourage you to pray this way. First of all, you know, this just amazes me that a man is sitting here and in a sense scolding God. Now, would you kill all of the people there? I mean, even the righteous people, that, the judge of all the earth wouldn't do something like that. That'd be far from you to do this kind of thing. Man, I, it's hard for me to understand exactly how he came off with talking to the Lord this way. And anyway, in verse uh, 26, it says, And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city... Then I will spare all the place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, If I find therein forty and five, I will not destroy it. And he said unto him yet again, uh, and said, Peradventure there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall be thirty be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty. And he said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. 
And the Lord went his way as soon as he had communed with Abraham. And it turned out that there weren't even ten righteous. There was only one righteous person there, and that was Lot. And you can read about this in 2 Peter chapter 2, that Lot was a righteous man, but he corrupted his soul. He vexed it watching and beholding their unlawful deeds. Man, I could preach a message on that one. That is a powerful. Deal. But anyway, righteous was a lot. Uh, lot was a righteous man, but Abraham only interceded if there was ten righteous. He felt pretty sure there must have been ten righteous. There weren't even ten righteous people, so the whole city was destroyed, and um, God rained fire and brimstone down. But here's my point. Some people teach that this is the way that God is. God is this angry God who's about to bring judgment on America. As a matter of fact, when I first got turned on to the Lord, again, you're a product of your environment. And I was taught all of these things. And so even though God had touched my life and had shown me great love, did you know I fell into the same patterns that I had been taught? And I, one of my favorite sayings was, I used to say, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because we are becoming as ungodly as Sodom and Gomorrah. There's no indication that Sodom and Gomorrah ever had a gay pride parade. There is no indication that they ever did some of the things that we're beginning to do. I mean, America is not operating godly at all. And so I used to say, if God doesn't judge us, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because we're as worthy of judgment. Now, with the revelation that I've got, I say that if God does judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Jesus because Jesus bore our sins and Jesus bore our judgment and the judgment of God is not going to be poured out on America. And this is different than what you hear most Christians say. Most Christians are dangling America over hell with a thin thread that's on fire and we're just about ready to perish. And they say that the terrorist attacks were God's judgment. Did anybody hear that? People are saying that this is God's judgment because we've taken prayer out of the schools and because we've done this and this and this. God's not judging America. God's not going to judge America. God's not punishing us. People will say that every time there's a major problem like a financial crisis or something, it's because America has forsaken uh, Israel and they say that this is God's judgment. Again, I'm pro-Israel, amen. I am not against Israel. I'm not going to speak against them. But God is not the one that's causing these problems. So somebody says, so you just think that he has nothing to do with it? Well, I believe this, that the way we're going, every step we take away from God, we get further and further away from his blessings and his protection. Not because he is punishing us, but we are walking away. We're closing the door. We're saying we don't want you in our life. And every step we take away, we get further away from his blessing and from his protection. And Satan is eating our lunch and popping the bag. Satan is destroying this nation. And if we don't repent and if this nation doesn't turn around, we're going to self-destruct. And we are going to destroy ourselves. And so, no, I'm not saying that America is immune and that we're just guaranteed that there's going to be no problems. But I'm saying it's not God that's punishing us. Satan is destroying us. And we are empowering him by the things that we do, the people that we elect to office, the decisions that we make. These things are wrong and they're destroying and hurting. And so, yes, they need to change, but it's not God's judgment. Just look at it this way. Even if you didn't factor the New Testament into it, if there was only 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, God would have spared them. I can guarantee you there's 10 righteous people in America. There's 10 righteous people in this room. 
And so if you just took this, even as an Old Testament passage of Scripture and didn't factor in the fact that Jesus has interceded for us, and if you just looked at it this way, well, then there's enough righteous people in America that God's not going to destroy it for the righteous. He says, no, I wouldn't do something like that. God is not going to bring judgment on this nation, but we are in the process of destroying ourselves. And so there needs to be a revival. There needs to be a turning to the Lord. But this is not the way we have to intercede with God because Jesus interceded with God greater than you and I ever could. You know, it was appropriate for Abraham to pray this way because Jesus hadn't come. There was wrath from God towards man and sins were being held against people. Romans chapter 5 verse 13 says that, you know, God was imputing people's sins unto him. In the New Testament, the scripture says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing man's trespasses unto them. It's different now. But during this period of time, the wrath of God was vented. The wrath of God was falling on people. And so it was appropriate for Abraham to pray and say that, Lord, don't do this. If there was 40, if there's 45, whatever, don't do this. It was appropriate for him to pray that way because that intercession hadn't been made. But Jesus has now interceded for us. He has forever satisfied the wrath of God. And you, if you pray this way, in a sense, you're undoing what Jesus did. You're thinking, I can do it better than Jesus. Jesus didn't do it sufficiently. I have to stand here as Abraham did. It's a totally different day. God's wrath has been satisfied. God's not angry at the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that He is the propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God has paid for the sins of the whole world. Now, people still have to receive that forgiveness. This doesn't mean that everybody just automatically goes to heaven. You have to accept that. You have to confess Jesus as your Lord. And people who don't do that will go to hell for the sin of rejecting Jesus. But their homosexuality, their lying, their stealing has already been forgiven. They'll go to hell for the sin of rejecting Jesus for the singular sin of not believing on Jesus. And so people still need to be born again, but God's not ticked off. He's not mad. He's not in a bad mood. God's not about to judge America. He's placed all of our judgment upon Jesus, and now he's extending his arms of mercy. And for you to pray the way Abraham did towards an angry God is wrong, and it's not understanding the new covenant. There's a difference, and you can't pray that way. It's wrong for us to pray that way. Look in Numbers, or excuse me, let's just stop in uh, Exodus chapter 32 first. This is a prayer of Moses. And Moses had been up on the mount for 40 days and 40 nights. He had been in the presence of God. God gave him the Ten Commandments, and with his finger carved out these Ten Commandments, wrote them in stone, and as he was speaking to Moses up on this mountain, it says in Exodus chapter 32 and in verse 7, The Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people, which, are, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. You know, I think this is funny because when Moses went down into Egypt to bring them out, the Lord said, Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. They were my people. God says, they're my people. You're oppressing my people. But now that they had messed up and they had made this golden calf and they were worshiping me, he says, Those pe your people that you brought up out of the land. Of 
it's like a husband and wife. You know, when the, when the kid wins the award, look what my son did. And when they mess up, look what your son did. God says, those people, your people that you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshiped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. You know, this is absolutely amazing. Most of the time, people just read over this stuff and don't think about it. But God is talking to a man, and he says, leave me alone. Get out of my way so that my wrath can wax hot, and I can destroy them, and I'll make a new nation out of you. You know, implied in here is God's respect for Moses. He honored and respected Moses to the degree that he knew that if Moses started pleading with him, he would respect Moses' judgment and he knew he wouldn't do what he wanted to do. That's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that God would respect any person that way. I don't care who they are, whether they're Moses or anybody else. Moses wasn't a perfect person. And God honored and respected Moses enough that he had pull with God. Not because Moses was perfect, but because God is merciful. And you know, it's amazing to me that God honors us enough, that he loves us enough, that what we have to say matters to God. That's amazing. But the Lord said, get out of my way, leave me alone so that my wrath may wax hot. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why did thy wrath wax hot? against thy people. He put it back on God, on your people. They aren't my people, they're your people. Which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. This is amazing. Here's a man saying, repent, telling God, repent. The Egyptians are going to hear about this. This is going to be a terrible PR deal. Man, your reputation is going to be ruined. It's just amazing to me that somebody would talk to God this way. It just overwhelms me. And he said, repent of your, of this evil against thy people. That's amazing that a man would talk to God that way. And look at this. In verse 14, it says, And the Lord repented of the evil. It's amazing that somebody would tell God to repent. And it's amazing that God would repent at the intercession of a person. And you will often hear this example used of how we've got to intercede and say, Oh God, repent of this judgment. I know that we're worthy of this, but repent of judging America. Repent of destroying this person. Oh God, repent of what you're doing to this person. It was appropriate for Moses to pray this because Jesus hadn't come. Man hadn't been reconciled. There was not an atonement made for our sins and God was angry and he was just and he was venting his wrath on people. I could give you lots of examples where a death angel went out and killed all of the people in the land of Egypt. An angel went out and killed 186,000 Syrians in one night. God struck people with leprosy and smote them. There was wrath and judgment. 
And many people see, see this and they think that that's the way that God still is. This is the way that God was and it was necessary. You know, I wish I could tell you everything I know in one hour, but I can't do it. I've got a book back there entitled The True Nature of God that will explain why there was wrath under the old covenant. I hadn't got time to go into that, but it was necessary at that time. But this never was the true heart of God. And when Jesus came, Jesus bore all of the wrath of God and has now ushered us into a place to where God's wrath has been satisfied, pacified forever. There's nothing that you can do to add to it. And if you pray a prayer like Moses did and say, repent of your evil, well, boy, you are in a sense denying that Jesus has already satisfied all of the demands of God. And you are trying to stand there. If Moses was to be somehow or another put in a time machine and just translated to our day and age, and if he prayed a prayer like that today... It would have been totally out of ignorance, not understanding that Jesus had changed things. Or if somehow, if he heard about Jesus and prayed this same prayer, it would have been a slap in the face of Jesus. It would have been a total denial that Jesus has reconciled us unto God. So you can't pray this way. There's no need to pray this way. God has changed things. God is now towards us. God is not putting judgment upon any of us. And for you to pray this way and, and believe that God is about to bring judgment on this nation is a misunderstanding, a lack of understanding about what Jesus came to do. Look in the Numbers chapter 16. Here's another example. And this is where the Korah, Dathan, and Abiram led a rebellion against Moses and he said, if I'm really a man of God, let the earth open up and swallow you alive into the pit. And Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and 250 people were swallowed into the pit and then the earth closed over them. That's pretty strong. And in verse 41, it says, but on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation and behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation and the Lord spake unto Moses saying, get you up from among this congregation that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell on their faces. Moses knew what was happening. The wrath of God was about to go out and wipe out all of these people. Remember in the 32nd chapter of the book of Exodus, he had said, I'm going to kill them all and start over with a new nation. And Moses knew what was coming. And so in verse 46, Moses said unto Aaron, take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly into the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord and the plague is begun. And Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 besides them that died about the matter of Korah. And so here's what happened. This wrath started and Moses told Aaron to take coals from off the altar of incense. This is where prayer was made. It was symbolic of the prayer, the sweet, the prayers that uh, went up to God. And he took some coals. In other words, he took prayer, put it in a censer. And it was like if, you know, if this group right here was the congregation and the plague started over here and people just started falling over dead 
Aaron went and ran and stood like in this middle aisle. And when the plague came to him and came to his intercession, those coals that he had, the plague stopped and the rest of the people were saved. And this is what had happened. And people will take this. I've heard this used as an example. This is what we've got to do. We've got to stand between an angry God that's about to destroy America and bring judgment on us. And we've got to stand there and say, turn from your fierce wrath. Repent, O God. And we've got to turn God from his anger. And there are New Testament believers. There's churches, I can guarantee you, right here in the Chicago area. Matter of fact, I would venture to say the majority of churches are teaching some form of judgment like this that God is about to judge. And what you've got to do is plead and beg with God to turn from his wrath and turn him away from that. Let me show you what's wrong with all of this. Look over in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. In the New Testament, Jesus is our mediator between us and God. In the Old Testament, I'm not going to take time to turn over there, but in in, uh, Galatians chapter 3, it says that the law was given to Moses and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. It called Moses a mediator. The dictionary says that a mediator is a person who stands between two people who are opposed to each other and tries to bring reconciliation. And so prior to Jesus coming, Moses was a mediator. Abraham was a mediator. They were standing between God who was justified. He would have been justified to wipe us all out and have been rid of us because we've all sinned against him and gone against his things. But there was a mediator that stood there and interceded and turned God from his wrath. And it was appropriate for Abraham and for Moses to be intercessors and mediators. But in the New Testament, Jesus is our mediator. And this says that there is now only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This is why you don't have to have somebody with their collar turned around backwards to stand and pray for you to God. And you don't have to confess your sins to them and get them to act as a mediator. That whole concept is a slap in the face of Jesus. It's saying that Jesus didn't fulfill, that these men here on earth are still performing that function. You know, in the old covenant, there were mediators that stood between God and man, but in the new covenant, Jesus is the mediator to end all other mediation. And he didn't do a partial job. He doesn't need your help. As a matter of fact, if you try and help him, if you say, oh, I know that Jesus has interceded, Father, but I'm going to add to this, and I just want to tell you also to repent and please turn from your wrath. Well, you know what? You've just polluted everything that he's done. If you mix any of your effort with what Jesus did, Jesus was so perfect, so pure, that for you to mix your effort with it pollutes it. It defiles it. You can't add to what Jesus has done. 
He is the perfect mediator and he has forever satisfied the wrath of God. The war is over is what that book I have is about that, that whole teaching, the war is over. There was war between God and man and yet the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill to man, peace from God towards man. He's now declared the end of hostilities. There's not any wrath towards us. You know, I know what I'm saying is different than most of us here. And most of us, just because we've heard it so much, the volume of teaching about God's angry at you. God's not answering your prayer because you hadn't been praying and you didn't go to church and you didn't pay your tithes. We've heard it so much that this is just like it's, it's uh, put a layer between us and this truth and we can't seem to get into it. But I'm telling you, God is not imputing your sins unto you. God is not mad at you. God is not bringing judgment on you. Jesus forever satisfied the wrath of God. You know how he did it? He brought all judgment unto himself. In John chapter 12, let me just read this passage to you. In John chapter 12, Jesus was talking about, he, he was praying right before his crucifixion and he says, Father, glorify your name. And there was a voice that came from heaven and says, I have glorified it before and I will glorify it again. And Jesus said this in John chapter 12, verse 30. He says, Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. In other words, he says, I didn't need this. God spoke this so that you could hear it. This is to help you. I didn't have to have this. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This 32nd verse is typically interpreted that if, I, if we preach Jesus correctly, Jesus will just draw people to us. That he'll draw people to the gospel. And this is the way that this is interpreted. And yet, that is not true. If you look at the mega churches, the very biggest churches, they are not preaching the best message. I'm not against them. I'm not here to criticize them. But you know, the pastor over here at Willow Creek has, uh, you know, I don't know how many people are in the church, but tens of thousands. And he purposely stated that the reason he ministered the way he did to where he cut the messages way down to where there was very little time to it and they went into more of a production and it was it was to draw people in and his philosophy was we're going to draw masses of people in and then our our weekly things will disciple these people and get them into the gospel and not long ago I think it's been less than a year he came out and admitted it's a failure that they are not discipling the people they've got large numbers of people but they aren't discipled and they aren't true Believers that many of them aren't even believers. And so the man who kind of modeled that has admitted that it hasn't worked. The people that are drawing the biggest crowds are not the ones that are preaching Jesus. It's the one that's, that's entertaining people. It's the ones that are dumbing down the gospel, taking out all offensive references. I won't mention any names right now, but there is a uh, church that was founded on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. And that was what grew it. And it grew to be like a five or 10,000 member church. 
and then the Son took over, and now they will not mention the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They've taken all of that off of their web page. They do all of these things in secret, and now it's just a positive message, and the church is mushroomed to 30 or 40,000 people. And lots of people are being impacted, and not all of it's bad, but I'm telling you, they aren't preaching the gospel as strong as they used to preach the gospel. I go to a church that runs about 12,000 people and I told the previous pastor, I said, if you were to give me this church for a month, I'd, I'd cut it down to a thousand. And I said, if you'd give it to me for a year, I'd cut it down to 500. You might have 500 people out of these 12,000 that are true committed followers. If you preach the word of God, you aren't going to draw the biggest crowds. That, this isn't saying that if you just preach the right message, I'll draw all men unto me. If you look at this in the King James Version, the word men is italicized. And the reason that the translators did this is because every time you see an italicized word, that means it wasn't in the original text. It was added by the translators to try and give clarity. And sometimes you have to do that. Like, for instance, when Jesus said, when the people came to arrest him and says, whom do you seek? And they said, I am he. The word he is not there. But it makes it grammatically correct to say, I am he. But the word he is italicized. What he really said was, I am. The I am of Exodus. And boom, all of these guys fell backwards to the ground. Amen. So it's not wrong that they put it in there, but the reason, at least they were honest enough to tell you that this word isn't really there. This is what we think needs to be in there to clarify it. So look at it with that in mind. He says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. All what? Well, the subject in the previous verse is judgment. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And the next verse explains it. It says, this he said, signifying what death he should die. He wasn't talking about that if you just glorify Jesus and preach him properly that you'll have the biggest church. That's not what that's saying. It's saying that I, if I be lifted up, will draw all judgment unto me. And here's my point, that Jesus, when he died, God put every bit of wrath, every bit of judgment that he had against Jesus. Everything. Not just a portion of it. Jesus didn't suffer a little token amount of judgment. All of the wrath of God for the entire human race, past, present, and even the sins that haven't been committed yet, all of the wrath of God was placed on Jesus at one time. He was like a lightning rod that drew all of God's judgment to him. And in that series, if you were to get that series, I don't have time to do it, but in Isaiah chapter 52, 53, and 54, I go through and explain how that his face was marred more than any human face has ever been marred on the earth. Did y'all see this lady this last week that her husband shot her in the face and she's the first face transplant and they showed the before and after? And her face was just terribly disfigured before. Did you know Jesus looked worse than that on the cross is what it says? Isaiah 52, 14. And it says in that same verse that his form was so marred that he didn't even look human. The passion of the Christ showed Jesus brutalized and bleeding and some people thought that was over the top. But the scriptures show that he didn't even look human hanging on the cross. How could that be? 
I don't believe any Roman beating could have ever have caused that. That wasn't just the physical suffering. You know what happened? He took our sickness, our disease. He had elephantitis. He had every deformity. He had every rotten thing that has ever happened in the human race all put into that one body and it was so defiled that his face was worse than any human being's face had ever been. His form was so marred that he didn't even look human. God placed all of his wrath, all of the punishment, all sickness, all disease. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken me. Not just blinked, turned away briefly, forsaken. God turned away from Jesus and Jesus suffered all of the wrath of God on sin. A physical human being could not have done it, but Jesus was also God, and God literally put all of the wrath and the punishment against sin upon Jesus. Jesus didn't just declare, oh, well, we'll forgive you now. No, Jesus bore your punishment. Jesus suffered that punishment. Every sin that you've ever committed, every shame that you've ever felt, Every time you've ever felt depressed and separated from God, Jesus felt that multiplied billions of times over by every human being. All of the sin that Hitler did, all of the shame, the defilement, the demonic stuff that went on in him, Jesus took all of that sin in himself and bore it. 1 John 2, 2, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He paid for Hitler's sins. He paid for... Pharaoh's sins. He's paid for every vile person, every homosexual, every person who commits bestiality, every person who does any vile thing on the face of the earth. Jesus paid for every bit of that. And God did that to his own son. And I tell you, if somehow or another, if I could offer one of my sons for you, and if I had my son suffer what you were supposed to suffer, I wouldn't make a sacrifice like that if it didn't work, if it only was a partial payment, if it wasn't going to solve the problem. When Jesus came and paid for our sins, he paid it all. There is nothing left to be paid. And for you thinking that you've got to grovel in the dirt and that you've got to repent of your sins and that you now have to intercede, no, God, please forgive me and beg God and have him turn from his wrath is an insult against Jesus. You don't understand the extent to which he paid. It was appropriate for Abraham and Moses to pray that way because Jesus hadn't died yet. But now that Jesus has died for us to follow their example and shake our fist at God and say, repent, turn from your fierce wrath, is totally undoing what Jesus has done. It's totally ignoring the fact that Jesus has forever satisfied the wrath of God. There's no wrath left in God. Now, for those who reject Jesus... I don't believe that there's a hell deep enough or an eternity long enough to punish a person who just either ignores or totally rebels at Jesus. But that's what people will be sent to hell for is the sin of rejecting Jesus. Jesus paid for their other sins, the lying, the stealing, the adultery, and on and on. But a person who rejects Jesus, man, there is no forgiveness for that. That's the unpardonable sin. That's the sin that God convicts people over. 
But if you understand what I'm saying, God has already paid for this. And now for us to pray the way that they prayed under the old covenant is totally wrong. I made mention of this the other night, but David prayed, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. You'll have people all the time, oh God, just renew a right spirit within me. You ought to get born again. And once you're born again, your spirit has been renewed. Quit asking God to do that. David didn't have a born-again spirit, so it was appropriate for him to pray that. It was appropriate for him to say, oh, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That was okay for him to pray that because he didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling him. But we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and it's wrong for you to pray, oh, God, don't leave us. Oh, God, come and be with us. Oh, God, go with us as we leave. Oh, God, don't turn me away. Oh, God, you've put me on a shelf, and you just have forsaken me. Every time you say something like that, in a sense, you're slapping Jesus in the face, saying that it's not enough. I also have to do this. It's my intercession that's going to turn God. And you dilute and pollute what Jesus has done. Here's another way of saying it. Some of you will probably be offended at this, but I'm just trying to get my point across. That Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. And so if you try and mediate and turn God from his wrath, and if it's up to you to make him repent, and you're praying, oh God, turn and do this, then you're anti-Christ. You're against what Jesus is doing. That's a spirit of anti-Christ. And this is what religion is teaching big time. They are ignoring that Jesus has paid the price, and they're trying to make us still operate like Abraham, like Moses, like David under the old covenant and turn God from his wrath and plead with him and beg for his mercy and all of these things. That is a total denial of what Jesus has done. Whether it's through ignorance or whether it's through rebellion, the end results is it will get you nothing. If you're going to pray, you're going to have to start praying in light of the fact that Jesus has already reconciled us unto God and God is not ticked off at you. God loves you, and so you don't have to beg Him. You don't have to plead. You know, like I was saying last night, it's been decades since I asked for things. What I do, I found out that God has already given me all things. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, I'm already blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I already have been healed. By His stripes, I was healed. 1 Peter 2, 24, I was healed. It's already been done. When I have a sickness come against me, I don't pray and ask God to heal me, but I thank Him that He's already healed me and He put raising from the dead power on the inside of me, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. And now I just take that power and I speak it with my words, Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And I just speak and command what God has already done for me to come into being. And I speak to my mountain. Mark chapter 11, verse 23, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. I don't talk to God about my mountain. I talk to my mountain and say, God has already healed me. Now you get out of my body. I command this to happen. And you speak like that. That's a totally different approach than coming before God and saying, oh God, I'm powerless. God, I can do nothing. The doctor says I'm going to die. God, would you please heal me? Pretty please. God, don't you love me? Don't you care for me? And you start crying and begging and pleading and then wonder why nothing happens. Those are two different things. They're two different approaches. And I'm telling you, most Christians are approaching God like that. 
The moment you sit there and say, oh God, we have no power to do anything. You know, in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20 is where three nations came out against Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat overcame them by putting the praisers in the front. But did you know when he started this whole process, he assembled the whole nation together and he prayed and he says, Oh Lord, we have no power against these companies. We are, our eyes are unto you. And you know, that was a great, great, great statement at the time. But in the new covenant, we do have power. And it's wrong for you to approach God as, Oh God, we're powerless. God, this is cancer. I can't do anything about it. Well, you and your natural self can't. There's some people here today, I'm sure, that are sitting there saying, well, now, wait a minute. Without Jesus, you're nothing. John chapter 15, verse 5, I believe it is. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And there's people sitting there thinking, boy, you think you're somebody special and you think you can do all of this stuff and you're just arrogant and proud and you're criticizing me. I agree 100% that without Jesus, I'm nothing. But what I'm saying is I'm not without Jesus and I'm never going to be without Jesus. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. If somehow or another you could separate Jesus from me, well, then I am not worth spitting on. Amen. I am not proclaiming my own power and my own authority. I'm saying it's Jesus 100%, but he's in me. And I cannot stand before my problems and just say, oh God, we have no power, no might. Would you please, pretty please do something? That's an insult against God. You have been resurrected. God has reconciled you unto himself through Jesus. You now have power and authority. And instead of begging and pleading with God and telling God to repent, you need to believe what he's done and understand the power that you've got and stand up and start taking your authority. And if you do it this way, really, everything's already been provided for you. When you run into some problem, you just pray and you speak to it. And if you don't see immediate results, say, Father, am I missing something? Show me what I need to know. Really, that's about the only request I ever make is, Father, I know you've already provided this. What am I missing? Show me what I need to know. That's really about the only request I make. You know, a few years back, it was 2003, we were trying to build this building and finish it out. And uh, I'd, I'd bought the building for uh, $3.2 million and we got a loan for that. And then we needed another $3.2 million to finish out the building renovation. And um, the builder, I mean, the banker told us, he says, we wouldn't have given you the loan if we hadn't already approved you for the construction loan. So he says, it's a done deal. You'll have your money next week. Well, that went on every week for nine months. And nine months later, we still didn't have the money. And I was sitting on this and our ministry was just imploding. We were growing so fast. We needed this building and we had to have the money. And anyway, it's a long, long story. But after nine months, he says, let's start all over. The appraisal's old now. Let's get a new appraisal and let's just start over. And all I could think of is, you know what? We're going to sit here nine months later, be at this same place. And so I said, you know, let me pray about this. And I said, God, and I didn't sit there and I wasn't asking, oh, God, make this loan go through. See, I don't pray that way. I just pray for the job to get done. And I assumed, which was wrong on my part, that God wanted me to take out a loan because I didn't have $3.2 million. So I assumed that we were going to get a loan and other people had offered it to us and it looked, everything was fine. But anyway, when nothing was working... I said, let me pray about it. And I started praying. And what I did was pray in tongues. 
And I prayed that God would give me an interpretation within 10 minutes of praying in tongues. God spoke to me and reminded me of a prophecy that said, you aren't going to need a loan because you already have a bank. Somebody had prophesied that over me. It says, you have a bank. And I said, what bank is that? It says, that bank is your partner's. And then they went on. And you know what? I just hadn't put all of the pieces together. But when I was praying and saying, God, what's happening? I know that this isn't a problem with you. There's got to be something wrong. What's the hindrance? God showed me that the problem was he didn't want me to take out a loan on that building. He wanted us to pay for it cash through our partners. And some of you think, well, that's a simple thing. It was a huge thing. Because at that time, Jamie says we had more money. I thought we had $30,000 saved in five years. You say it was what, 100000 But you know what? 100000 is still a huge amount from $3.2 million. And at the rate we had been saving money, it could have taken me 100 years to have gotten that money together and have finished that thing out. Plus, on top of all of this... Uh, we had just expanded our television like $190,000 per month. It was the biggest expansion we'd ever made. So we were already under the gun and we had to have a huge increase in finances just to keep level with our monthly payments. And on top of that, I needed $3.2 million. And, and for me to accept this word and say, I'm going to just believe God, you know, I'm... I believe that a godly man, Psalms 15, 4, I believe it is, says he'll swear to his own hurt and change not. If I advertise to my partners that God told me that you are going to help me finish this, and if my partners didn't come through, then I wouldn't go take a loan. I would not change. I was going to commit myself to this if I committed. And it could have destroyed the ministry. It could have been the end of the ministry because if it would have, if we would have just accumulated money at the rate we were going in a hundred years for me to finish that building, I'd have been gone. This ministry would have been over. So I prayed about it and made sure, but you know, I decided to go ahead and do that. And anyway, the good news is in 14 months, I brought in $3.2 million above our normal operating expense. We paid for that and had it debt free. And man, it's just a tremendous blessing. But here's my point. That see, I didn't sit there and, oh God, in the name of Jesus, and fight with him and try and make him make that loan come through. That's not the way I pray because I'm not smart enough to be God and tell him what to do. I just know that the job needed to be done. I didn't know how to get there. I was assuming it was going to be a loan. But when it wasn't working, I started praying. And and the only question I asked is, God... What's the deal? What do you want me to do? Once God speaks to you, then you act on it and you just go ahead. Amen? Amen. If you pray for something, God's already healed you. So you speak to it. And if you don't see it go, well, then you start praying in tongues to build yourself up on your most holy faith because it's a very good possibility that the reason it's not working is because you aren't strong in faith. So start seeking the Lord more and get into the Word and pray and build yourself up. Get somebody to agree with you and help you if you don't feel like your faith is where it should be. Ask God for what's the hindrance. Show me what's going on. Am I doing something wrong? And I do things like that, but I don't ever sit there and just plead with God as if he's my adversary. God has now reconciled me to himself. God wants good for me more than I want it, and I don't ever have to beg and plead with God. 
You know, when my son was raised from the dead, when we got that news that he was dead, we got a call at 4.15 in the morning. Jamie and I just immediately spoke and said, the first report's not the last report. And we said, in the name of Jesus, we command life back into him. And then we had to get up and drive into town. It was an hour and 15 minutes. Our cell phones didn't work, and we were without communication. And so as we were driving in, you know what? I wasn't begging, pleading with God. God's not my problem. You know what I did? I just started praising the Lord. I started having grief, sorrow, fear, all of these negative things that I didn't like. And I don't like them. And I knew it wasn't glorifying God. So I just started praising God. I wasn't praising God to manipulate him. I started praising God and saying, Father, if my son doesn't come back to life, you didn't kill him. It's not your fault. I'm going to serve you. I want you to know I love you. I am not put out with you. You have not failed me. If anybody failed anybody, I failed you. And I just started praising him for how good he is. And I said, I'm going to praise you regardless. And man, when I did that, you know, it's like praise primes the pump. And man, all of a sudden, faith rose on the inside of me. And God gave me a word. And sure enough, our son, after being dead for four and a half, five hours, was raised from the dead and was normal, as normal as he was before. No brain damage, no more than he had before. And he was raised from the dead. And it was a miracle. It was awesome. But you know what? Even in that situation, I didn't beg and plead with God. I took my authority and spoke what I believed was God's will. And then I just started praising Him. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, there's a better way to pray than what most of us have prayed. And it's to understand that God has already reconciled us to Himself. God is not the adversary that you see in the Old Testament. You've got to get a clear distinction recognize that there's only one mediator now and that's not, that's not you, that's not anybody else. You don't have to beg and plead with God. All you got to do is stand here and just be a channel for God to flow through. Just take your authority and speak and command this and release the power of God. That's dependent upon you knowing what God's will is. You can't just sit there and enforce your own desires. You have to know what the Word of God says. But once you know that this is God's will, then take your authority and just speak it and proclaim it and use the power of death and life that's in your tongue to overcome things. And praise God and just love God. And you do that, and I guarantee you, you'll see better results than what most people have been getting. Amen? That's good news. That'll help you. You know, let me say this. Thank you, Jesus. Let me say this, if you don't know Jesus, maybe a few of the things I said here today have helped you because I said that all of your sins have already been paid for. Some of you may feel like you've just been too bad. How could God forgive you? The truth is He's already forgiven you. He put all of His wrath on Jesus. Jesus has suffered. Every, every night, that, if you could go back and remember in your mind when you just really did something terrible and you just sat there in total shame and you were humiliated. You were shocked at what you did. Did you know what? Jesus has already borne all of that for you. Jesus felt exactly the way that you felt. Jesus took your shame. He took your punishment. Jesus has already suffered, and He's already forgiven you of all of that. And so now it's not a matter of what you've done. It's just the only thing that matters is are you going to make Jesus your Lord? Are you going to put your faith in Him? Or are you going to trust in your own goodness 
to make you right with God. If you'll humble yourself and make Jesus your Lord, you can be born again and you can instantly be changed like our sister was talking about this morning and she got changed. I was watching you last night. Man, God touched her. She was set free. Isn't that awesome? You could be instantly changed. God's already provided it all. It's just a matter of will you receive it. And if you get born again, then you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And today in our religious culture, people have broken salvation into these parts and said getting forgiven of your sins is the only thing. And they preach against the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, miracles and things like this. But that's not what the Bible says. God also wants to fill you with power. Jesus said you'll receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And then you'll be a witness unto me. And so you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't do any miracles until the Holy Spirit came upon him. And he was God. But God just doesn't operate independent. He's three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son would not operate independent of the Holy Spirit if He wouldn't do anything without the Holy Spirit. Who do you think you are that you can do anything without the Holy Spirit? Jesus said, these miracles testify of who I am. If Jesus had to use the power of the Holy Spirit in miracles to demonstrate that He was the real deal, who do you think you are that you don't need miracles and power in your life? Well, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm just boldly proclaiming that regardless what your religious doctrine is and regardless where they told you that this stuff passed away and you don't need it today, I'm telling you, you do need it. It's essential. You don't have to have it to go to heaven. You can actually go to heaven quicker if you don't have the Holy Spirit because you aren't going to have any power to be able to overcome the sickness and disease that Satan throws at you. But you know what? You can't live a victorious life without the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that accompany it. And there's more than just speaking in tongues, but speaking in tongues is one of those gifts. Is there anybody here today who would say, I need either to make Jesus my Lord and be born again, or I am born again, but I need the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues? Anybody here like that? If that's you, I want you to raise your hand, and I'd like...